introduction. It's always good uh, to be back here. As I said, feels like uh, a second home to me. I want to uh, spend our time this morning looking at a passage from first chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. The title of the message is The Storm Before the Calm. The Storm Before the Calm. And the point uh, of the message this morning that the eternal, glorious, unchanging, divine Son of God must be the anchor in life for our souls. Let's look at this passage. God's word to us this morning. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? is God's word. Would you pray with me? Thank you for your word, Lord God, that is not dead, but that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging, discerning the intentions of the heart. And Lord, we are all naked and exposed to you this morning, the one to whom we must all give account. And we praise you, Lord God, because that means you know precisely what we stand in need of this morning. And so would you be pleased through the preaching of your word to work by the power of your spirit to do what only you can do and meet us where we are and give us what we need. Lord, if it's encouragement, encourage our hearts. If it's correction in your mercy, correct us. If it is faith and hope, Lord God, give us 
those gifts, that we would be people who live for your praise through Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, and amen. As you can see in the bio, and as I've already said to somebody this morning during worship, I am a CrossFit fanatic. You know CrossFit fanatics because they tell you that they are CrossFit fanatics. If you don't know what CrossFit is, it is a training methodology defined as uh, uh, constantly varied functional movements performed at high intensity. Now I, you know, CrossFit has these workouts, they're called benchmark workouts that you do every once in a while. I, we did one at my CrossFit gym a couple of weeks ago. The workout's name is Isabel. CrossFit has these benchmark workouts, and they all have names. They're simply known as the girls. There is Annie and Barbara and Cindy and Diane and Elizabeth and Fran and Grace and Helen and Jackie and Kelly and Linda and Mary and Nancy. Why female names for these benchmark workouts? Well, it doesn't really have much of anything to do uh, with gender at all. These workouts are actually named after hurricanes. Uh, CrossFit decided to follow the pattern of the National Weather Service, which started to assign female names to hurricanes and storms after 1953 because they wanted to use, in their words, short, distinctive, given names that made it easier for easier and quicker communication. And Greg Glassman, the founder of CrossFit, said, this uh, convenience and logic inspired our granting a special group of workouts women's names. But anything that leaves you uh, flat on your back and incapacitated only to lure you back for more at a later date certainly deserves naming. These workouts are indeed just like hurricanes. There's a calm before the storm. You're feeling fine, uh, talking with your fellow gym members, and the coach has taken you through a nice warm-up to break out a, a, a sweat and get ready, and then she starts the timer, counting down to the start of the workout. Ten seconds, she yells, and then you hear her say, three, two, one, go. And all hell breaks loose. At a certain point, you feel as though you may die. If you can think at all, you're thinking to yourself, why am I here doing this voluntarily? I had a coach one time early in my CrossFit days. She said to me, listen, don't worry. Your body is very intelligent. You will pass out before you die. So keep going. <laughs> Workout ends, and you do wonder whether or not you are dead. At the end of the workout, there's devastation in the gym. It's evident as people are lying on the floor all over, uh, making what we call sweat angels on the floor, our imprints of our bodies in sweat on the floor. This is what happens in a hurricane. There's calm, 
and then there's a realization that the storm has hit and you are no longer in control. And then after the storm passes, there's actually chaos. Devastation is all around. And, and what I want to put before you uh, this morning from our text is that in, in Jesus and with Jesus Christ, it is actually the opposite. We, what we find out about following Jesus is that there is a different pattern. It is the storm before the calm that we will explore with these uh, three words, chaos and control and calm. Chaos, control, and calm. There is perhaps no chapter in the Bible that hits us more strongly with the divinity of Jesus Christ than this first chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. You cannot read this chapter, these verses, and say that the Bible declares that Jesus is just a mere prophet. No, he is God. We, we don't know for sure who the author of the letter is or was. I simply call him uh, the pastor because this letter is a long sermon. At the end of the, of the letter, he says to them in chapter 13 and verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. He calls his message to them just a word of ex exhortation. And not only that, but listen, if you read through chapter 11, you know he's preaching because the brother is actually hooping in that chapter. What I love about the pastor is that he's not setting forth the divinity of Christ, the divine nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as an idea that is disconnected from life. He's not just giving them head knowledge. All of this rich theology about Jesus Christ is not given in a, in a vacuum. It is the epitome of theology applied to life. Jesus' being God is important because the world is full of chaos. In verses 10 to 12 of this chapter, he quotes from Psalm 102, which we heard in our scripture reading this morning. Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, telling us that God the Father says to God the Son, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Why is he quoting from Psalm 102 in reference to Jesus Christ? Well, if you look at Psalm 102, the opening line, actually in the English it's verse 0, but in the Hebrew text it's the first verse of the psalm. The heading says, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint to the Lord. The psalmist is in the midst of a storm. He is overwhelmed by the chaos of this world. His world had been rocked. What's turned his world upside down is that Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple was in ruins. Uh, the temple was supposed to be the place where God made his name to dwell. It was the evidence that the Lord was with his people. And now the thing that he thought was most secure and stable was gone. The Babylonians had crushed them and taken them into exile. 
This analogy that I'm about to give you, it falls short, but I think it makes the point, it helps us see the point. When I was young, uh, growing up in New York City, my father used to work uh, at the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. He usually took the train home from, from work, but every once in a while, on a few occasions, uh, my mother would, uh, would drive into Manhattan with me and my sister to, to pick him up from work. And I can remember on one of those occasions being parked outside of uh, the World Trade Center, uh, waiting for Dad to come out and, and looking out the car window up to the top uh, of the towers. And as hard as I strained my neck, I couldn't see the top. I was amazed by those buildings, and, and they were, in my mind, permanent fixtures in New York. The pictures that represented New York City always had uh, included the Twin Towers, and obviously, right, they were not the permanent fixtures I thought they were. That city and this, this country was thrown into distress when they fell on 9-11. Well, the distress on the faces of New Yorkers when the towers fell gets at the distress of the psalmist when he says, my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace, my heart heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forgot to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. But there's a turning point in the psalm. In verse 12, he says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations in the midst of the chaos that's around him. What he realizes is that the only stable, unchanging reality is that the Lord is enthroned forever. That is the message that the pastor is communicating in Hebrews chapter 1. The distress you feel is real, but the one who walked the streets of Jerusalem and said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, is none other than the Lord your God. He is telling them that Jesus is the very one who laid the earth's foundation in the beginning, the very one who created created the heavens and the earth, those created things will wear out and be rolled up like an old garment and be changed. But the Lord continues forever. He is the same and his years have no end. The chaos is having a particular impact on the recipients of this letter. Their pastor is writing to them because they are in danger. They're in danger of drifting away from the faith because of the persecution that they are under for following Jesus. They want a release from the pressure. Following Jesus is costing more than they anticipated. And the question that they are asking is, is it worth it? Isn't there an easier way to be right with God? We don't want to forget about God. We just want less suffering. Maybe folk will like us more and stop treating us so badly if we make some slight modification to what it means to be a Christian. Then folks will be okay with this gospel we're trying to preach and live. 
They're in a dangerous position. They have need of endurance. They're at the, if you will, the height of the workout when the pressure is most intense and they want to quit, but they have to endure. That's why the pastor will say to them in chapter 10 of this letter, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you might receive what is promised. What is interesting, though, is how he begins to address their concerns. He wants them to endure through the chaos, to not give up, but he doesn't start out this letter saying to them, hold on, don't be discouraged, keep the faith. These are things that he will say to them throughout his message, but his starting point in these beginning verses is with the unrivaled glory, majesty, and authority of the Son of God. If they're going to endure through the chaos of this life, particularly as Christians, what has to be in view is how glorious Jesus is. No encouragement to keep the faith is going to have any teeth unless we are gripped by the incomparable glory of Jesus the Christ. Make no mistake about it. Following Jesus is costly. We don't do anyone any favors by presenting the Christian life as one of ease and comfort. Unless you are captivated by, unless you are captured by, unless your heart is beating to the rhythm of the grandeur and the majesty and the bigness and the radiance and the glory of Jesus, you will never think that being a Christian is worth it. One pastor put it recently, he says, the bigger the question, the bigger the bigger the question or the vision that God puts before his people, the bigger their view of Jesus has to be. The only way to endure the chaos is to know that Jesus is in control. The punch that he packs in the first four verses of this text is that Jesus is the glorious prophet, Jesus is the glorious priest, and Jesus is the glorious king. This letter begins almost like uh, the movie Star Wars, you know, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. He says, long ago, at many times, God spoke by our father to the prophets at various points in history in different ways God raised up and anointed prophets to declare his word with authority Abraham and Moses and Samuel Elijah Elisha Isaiah and on and on God spoke to his people through the prophets always to direct them to himself it was always so that they would know what was necessary for them to live in a way that honors and glorifies him God was not silent, but we are often deaf. He spoke that we would know him and understand who he is, but we're hard of hearing, and here is the deal. As glorious as the word spoken through the prophets was, it was varied, it was diverse and fragmented because the prophets were many in number, but a change took place when Jesus came on the scene. In these last days, the pastor says, God has spoken to us by the Son, by the unique and only Son. When God the Son took on human flesh and was born of 
woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus' word became the final, complete, full word of God. That's why he says in the first verse of chapter 2, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. If the word that the various prophets was glorious and authoritative, how much more glorious is the message given to us by Jesus Christ? God's word to us in Christ has been spoken fully and finally. The full final and complete word of God is Jesus. In other words, God is up the ante. The Son is far superior to the prophets. Jesus is supreme over everyone who's come before him. Prophets, priests, and king, it all pointed to him. He's the full and final word of God. You can almost Ask the question, how could the description of Jesus get any better? What more could you say to describe how glorious Jesus is? But then you get to the second part of verse 3 when he says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In five words in the Greek text, eight words in our English translation, he lets us know that not only is Jesus a glorious prophet, he is the glorious priest. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Those words describe the entirety of Jesus' work. The pastor is providing a check-your-attitude time. You can't afford to ignore the absolute holiness of God. You can't afford to think that you'll be okay as long as you're a decent person. You need a right view of God, and you need a right view of yourself. God is holy, and you're not. God is holy, and I'm not. If you're going to know him, he has to provide a way for that to happen. What he did in the Old Testament is provide a line of priests whose daily ministry it was to atone for their own sins and for the sins of the people by sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats. It was a gory and gruesome scene. Blood flowed in the tabernacle every day. This is how seriously God takes sin. The pastor reminds them in, in chapter 9 and verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Every day, blood was was shed so that the people would not be consumed. God's punishment for sin, it fell on lambs and bulls and goats. But again, as the pastor will say in this letter in chapter 10, he says it is impossible in verse 4 of that chapter for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats could never finally fully and completely take care of the problem of sin. So the same sacrifices had to continually be offered day in and day out over and over and over and over again. But when the one who is the radiance of the glory of God came, he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came as the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God. He came both as a sacrificial offering and as the offerer. He is the great high priest 
who offered himself as the only one who could crush sin as he was being beaten and whipped and as the blood was flowing from his head and his hands and his feet, purification was being made for the sins of everyone who puts their trust in him. As the hymn writer says, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ere such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown. Jesus made full and final purifications for sins. How do I know? How do we know that it's final and complete? Do you know what was missing in the tabernacle? Do you know what was missing when the priest went in to offer the blood of the atonement? There was no chair. They had to stand daily offering the sacrifices. There was no chair because there was no rest. But when Jesus made purification for sins, the Bible says he sat down. He took his seat. The work was finished and complete. There was no longer remaining any need for any other sacrifice for sin. Let me ask you this question. Are you trying to clean yourself up? Are you trying to clean yourself up? Let me tell you something. If you're trying to get yourself together before coming to God, instead of giving yourself over to God with all of your mess and all of your brokenness, what you are actually doing is spitting in God's face. You're saying, God, I got this. Stop it. Stop it. Stop spitting in God's face. The pastor is showing them that Jesus is the glorious priest because they're being tempted to take matters into their own hands. They're being tempted to make up their own way of salvation and right living. The message is that he's the only one who can make the impure pure. There's no other way than throwing yourself at his feet. Listen, Jesus the glorious prophet, the glorious merciful high priest, but he's also our great and glorious king. Reality is, listen, Jesus took his seat, but he didn't sit down at any old place. It says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen, there was a day, these, the, the writers or the recipients of this letter, part of their struggle was, was they, were, they thought that uh, they had this view that when the Messiah came, there would be actually two uh, messianic figures, that, that there would be these two angels that were messianic figures, and one would be uh, more like a, a priest, and one would be more like a, like a king. That's why, that's why the pastor has to say to them, Jesus is far superior to the angels. He's letting them know, y'all got it twisted. Jesus has a better name than any angel. His name is Son. He's the only one y'all need to be looking for. He is your glorious prophet and priest and king, right? Of which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The Son rules. The Son is king. Listen, you, you and I, we have to know that we know that we know in our bones, 
in every fiber of our being that Jesus is in control, that he's in control as a glorious prophet and priest and king if we're going to endure the chaos of this world. Listen, because we live in a divided and polarized nation, a divided and polarized world, politically, racially, socioeconomically, and on and on the list goes. In quoting from Psalm 45, 6, and 7, the son loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. Therefore, he is anointed by God with the oil of gladness. When will we see this righteousness rule the day. Where is the world going? The optimist says things are getting better. The pessimist says things are going to hell in a handbasket. Here's where the world is going. It is going to the place where every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Creation is not under the authority of angels. It's not under the authority of presidents and kings. It is under the Son's authority. The angels don't sit at the Father's right hand or have their enemies as a footstool. Our issue is that we don't yet see it with our eyes, and anything we can't see, hear, taste, touch, or smell, we doubt. That's why he says what he says at the end of chapter 14. That's why those words are so encouraging in verse 14 when he says, listen, I'm, I, I am personally convinced that he says it not just to correct their bad theology, but to encourage them in the truth. There is a calm that comes after the storm. There's a day coming when God, as Revelation 21 and 4 says to us, will wipe away every tear from people's eyes, and death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's not only a calm that comes after the storm, but there is a calm that comes in the storm for the people of God right now. And so he says to them about the angels, he says, are not they all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels, these glorious creatures who worship Jesus, these powerful spiritual creatures who invoke terror in the hearts of people whenever they come on the scene in the Bible, the pastor says that God sends them out to minister, to serve on behalf of those who are to inherit salvation. The angels can't be compared to Jesus. They're under his authority. They do his will. Here's his will. He sends them to help those who follow him. Listen, we are told in verse 2 that the Son is the heir of all things. He has an inheritance. We're told in verse 4 that he has inherited a name that is more excellent than that of the angels. And now we're told that the angels are sent to minister on behalf of those who are to inherit salvation. And he uses the word inherit on purpose. He wants to link them intimately with the Son and emphasize God's intentions for them. Jesus is seated in glory right now. He's reigning and ruling right now, but that doesn't seem to always be the case. It seems 
seems like everything but the Son of God is in control. But as just as the Father's plan was for the Son to do his work of redemption and take his rightful place on the throne coming into his inheritance, it is the guaranteed plan of the Father and the Son to bring every Christian into the full inheritance of eternal life with them in glory. So he gives his children the strength to calmly endure through the storms. You see why he says to them, as I quoted already, do not throw away your confidence, which has very great reward. You have need of endurance. Here it is. If you are, if you have the Son of God, you are a privileged person. We have the Son of God. We are a privileged people. Do you get to the very angels of God minister, they serve on your behalf. God sends them out to watch over you to make sure that you will endure through the chaos and through the storm that you will make it to the end. Do you realize how privileged you are? Do you realize that when you go out of this place today, when you go back into the hell of, of the world tomorrow, and you go back into all of the challenges that you got to face in your workplace, in, uh, in, in your home, in your community that, that threaten your faith that God has sent his angels to minister on your behalf. That you are not alone. That you are not fighting the fight by yourself. God has secured your inheritance. Now and forevermore, it is yours and can never be taken away. Jesus Christ, he has you in his grip. And he said, nobody is strong enough to take you out of my hand. I send my very angels and they're serving on your behalf to make sure you make it through. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you your great love for us. Thank you for your great care for us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a glorious prophet, priest, and king, that you are the one who holds us firmly in your hand, that you send the very angels, those glorious creatures, to serve and to minister on behalf of those who are to inherit salvation. I pray when the times get difficult and challenging for your people, for us in this church, in this place, in this city, that our eyes will, will, will look up again to the glorious risen ascended Christ and that our hearts would be filled with joy knowing that we will make it through and endure. We ask it in his name. Amen? Amen. Amen.